Well, good morning again, everyone. Welcome to Grace Church, Medina East Campus. How's everybody doing this morning at 9.15? Everybody awake and alive? Yeah, quasi-ish, good. Is everybody awake and alive? Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm talking about. All right, we'll, we'll try that again next week, okay. But again, welcome to Grace Church, Medina East Campus. Uh, if you don't know me, just allow me a second to introduce myself. Uh, my name is Seth. I am one of the pastors here at Medina East. And uh, I just gotta say, as I was preparing for this week and I was thinking about the opportunity that we get every week uh, on our, in our weekend services, week in and week out, just to come together as a community of people and to kind of sit underneath God's word and to just hear from Jesus and to kind of shine the spotlight on him and keep him front and center. It's just an amazing privilege for us to be able to do that. And guys, I gotta be honest with you, I am, I am especially privileged to be standing up here and sharing with you and that we get a chance to hear from God and his word together. I'm really excited about uh, today and about that opportunity that we have every single week. Uh, so if you have been uh, with us the past several weeks, uh, you know that we have been in a series that we have been calling Highlight God Through You. Highlight God Through You. And so essentially what we've been doing in this series is pretty simple. We have been taking a, a concerted look, kind of a comprehensive look at the book of First Peter. The book of First Peter, which appears kind of in the rightmost section of your Bible in the place called the New Testament. And what we've been doing in First Peter is this. We have been looking at how Peter who is the author of the book of 1 Peter, is encouraging followers of Jesus in his day and age, in his original audience and culture, on how to remain faithful, tried and true uh, to Jesus, to place faith in Jesus, to remain faithful, to live out the values of what it means to follow Jesus in the midst of a culture and environment that was often very hostile to the message of Jesus. I mean, these guys were going through incredible hardship, suffering and persecution. So Peter is over and over encouraging followers of Jesus. Hey, here's how you remain faithful. Here's how you stick tried and true to who Jesus is and what he's all about in your life. And so uh, part of what we've been looking to do is not merely just unearth the original context for the original audience and see what Peter has to say to a group of people that existed 2,000 years ago. I mean, more importantly, what we've been trying to do is to take a look at just how what Peter says to that group of people might provide wisdom, insight, and clarity for what it means to be a follower of Jesus today, like in this day and age, what would it look like to encounter and engage a culture that is often apathetic or hostile to the things of God right now? And so one of the ways that we've looked across the book of 1 Peter and said, man, it's a really good idea. Peter kind of uh, helps us to view ourselves, for those of us that call ourselves followers of Jesus, to view ourselves in a certain way. And we said that in this series, man, a great way to look at that is to think of followers of Jesus should think of themselves as highlighters, think of themselves as highlighters. And so if you think about a highlighter for a second, it technically belongs in the genus or the species of marker, doesn't it, right? A highlighter is a marker, but it's not your average marker, is it? So if you think about the average marker or like a Sharpie, right? That marker, when you write it down, when you write something down on a piece of paper, that marker exists to draw attention to itself, doesn't it? But a highlighter, well, a highlighter is something different entirely. When you highlight something, that highlighter exists to draw glory, honor, reputation, and to draw people's attention to something else. And so likewise, we think the book of 1 Peter, that's a great way to think about what Peter is trying to get us to understand and see. That followers of Jesus, in the way that they live their lives, that they can be faithful to Christ, that they can live like highlighters to draw attention and glory and praise and honor at the great reputation and the goodness of who God is. Is. And so the last couple of weeks, we took a particular look at how Christ followers can highlight God through things like suffering, uh, as well as things like doing good. So we talked about that last week, speaking good or doing good, living by example. And so this week, we're going to take a look at what it means to be a highlighter in the book of 1 Peter from a little bit of a different angle. We're going to take a look at what it might look like to shine the spotlight on Jesus by Christian community or by biblical community. And so what we're going to do is, uh, if you brought your Bibles, we're going to make our way out to a uh, passage of Scripture today. It's actually one single verse. We just got one verse today in 1 Peter 2, 9. So if you brought your Bibles with you, I invite you to get those out <clears throat> or maybe get your tablet or whatever other device you have uh, that you have your Bible on. You can turn to 1 Peter 2, Nine. Uh, listen, if you don't have a Bible with you, uh, that's okay. We're gonna have everything that you need on the screen behind me. We've also got some Bibles underneath the seats in front of you. You can follow along. That would be on page 
851 in those Bibles. And lastly, let me just say that if you don't have a Bible, like you don't own a Bible, what we want you to do is take one of those Bibles under the seat in front of you and just take that home with you today. I just consider it our way of saying thank you for being here. What a privilege it is to be having this conversation with you. And we just wanna get the Bible, which we believe is God's message, his word to you in your hands. All right, so 1 Peter 2, 9. Here's what Peter has to say about Christ followers being a Christian or a biblical community and its significance for highlighting Jesus. I was having trouble yesterday with this. There we go. All right, so this is what Peter says. But you, Christ followers, are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, or wonderful light, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. All right, so first things first, as we're kind of getting oriented around this passage, one thing we have to realize is that we are parachuting into the middle of the book of 1 Peter here. We're in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. And so what that means is we have an entire chapter and eight verses that have come before this. And so what can be difficult for us in parachuting in this way is kind of when you, when you jump into verse 9, we're getting a lot of language that is often, I mean, if we're going to be honest, uh, some language that's a little bizarre or unorthodox. Uh, the language that you see here, a lot of it, the vocabulary is not stuff or words or terminology that we use in our average everyday lives. And so you think about what Peter says here. He uses words like chosen. So I think we, we kind of know what chosen means. We get that. But in this sense, you're like, what is Peter talking about here? Chosen? Are we talking about Neo in the Matrix? Are we talking about Anakin Skywalker, Obi-Wan Kenobi looking at a burned up Anakin saying, you were the chosen one. What did you do, Anakin? Right, is that, is that what we're talking about? But as we proceed, thank you. I appreciate the laughter. I, I've never impersonated Obi-Wan Kenobi before. It's really good. I'm, I'm feeling a calling in my life toward that. So chosen, right? But then we get into words that are even more foreign to us, royal, because we're like, man, we live in America. It's, we're not in a monarchy. We're in a representative democracy. Then it gets even more weird. Priesthood, oh boy. Some of us, our stomachs churn. Holy, let me ask you guys, when was the last time you used the word holy in your average everyday conversation? And the correct answer is no one, so that's good. So God's special possession, what would it mean to be special to God, a special possession? And then you get through all this appraises, out of darkness, wonderful light, you're like, man, Peter, if you're talking to me about what Christian community is supposed to be, I'm a little lost with this terminology. And, and in addition to that, what compounds on this lack of our ability to kind of understand what Peter's saying, because we don't use these words, what compounds is sort of like the rapid fire nature of the way Peter like describes this. We're machine gunned with four immediate phrases about what the church is supposed to be, what God's community of people is supposed to be. Chosen people, royal priesthood, holy nation, God's special possession. You're like, Peter, what's the deal? Help me out. What does this Christian community, this community of Christ followers, what do you even mean by some of these phrases? Well, i tell you what, as we start, as we kind of make our entry into this passage, I think there is one feature of the book of 1 Peter that is gonna be really helpful for us to understand if we're gonna start making our way into comprehending the significance of what Peter is saying here when he gives us these four phrases. And that feature is this. Throughout the book of 1 Peter, Man, Peter has this uncanny habit of using his Old Testament, using his Old Testament. He uses the Old Testament a lot. He either quotes it or alludes to it, or there's echoes of the Old Testament. And if you don't know what the Old Testament is, that's completely fine. Basically, the Old Testament is kind of the, uh, the left three quarters of your Bible, okay? And it's the Old Testament that recounts the story of God and his relationship and his interaction with a people group or a nation known as the nation of Israel. And so you have to know this. Uh, and, and what Peter does is often, so often throughout the book, Peter is leveraging or banking on the stories and the ideas that are found within that Old Testament. And he uses them as a means, again, his agenda in 1 Peter is very clear. He uses those stories and ideas to encourage the group of Christ followers to whom he is writing in Rome at the time, to encourage these group of Christ followers to remain faithful to Jesus in the midst of a culture 
culture and a society that is often hostile to its message. And so if you actually start to dig in just a little bit, you will actually discover that the four phrases or the fra- some of the phrasing and some of the terminology that's used here at the beginning of 1 Peter 2.9 Peter is banking on his Old Testament. He is directly quoting a passage in the Old Testament from the book of Exodus, specifically Exodus chapter 19 and specifically verses five through six in that book. Listen, I just wanna show this to you because I think it's really important as we start to dive in and figure out what Peter is doing here and what he means by some of these phrases and what he's trying to get across to us. So here, Exodus 19, right? So let me give you a little context. Uh, In the 18 chapters of Exodus prior to this, God has taken an enslaved group of people known as the people of Israel, and they were enslaved to the most ruthless power of the known day, Pharaoh, who is the king of Egypt or who ruled over Egypt. And there's nothing short of miraculous. God brings this nation out of slavery to Egypt. He brings them through the Red Sea. You gotta think about Charlton Heston when you go through the Red Sea. So he brings them through the Red Sea and then he, he has this nation of Israel, this people of Israel, camp out at the foot of this mountain called Mount Sinai. And here at Mount Sinai, God descends down and he commits himself in a binding covenant relationship with the people of Israel, committed relationship. And this is where we find ourselves in Exodus 19. Uh, And Exodus 19, starting in verse three, says this. Then Moses, who was God's representative who helped bring the people out of Egypt, then Moses went up to God and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, this is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob, which was also called Israel, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Man, we don't have time to camp out there, but if you have a moment this week to go back and read what it would mean for Yahweh, God, to carry his people on eagles' wings. Man, what beautiful poetic imagery here. But nevertheless, and brought you to myself. Verse five, now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my, say it with me, treasured possession. Other translations have special possession. Ah, okay. Now we're starting to get some of this 1 Peter 2, 9 language. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests. You could also translate this as a royal priesthood. And what? A holy nation, right? And so these are the words that you are to speak to the people of Israel. So you could see right off the bat here that three out of the four phrases that Peter uses to describe Christ followers in community in 1 Peter 2.9 are found right here in Exodus 19. And so you don't need to be a rocket scientist to figure out that Peter is looking back to this story to communicate some kind of encouraging thing to Christ followers in his day in a world that again is often hostile to the message and the things of God in Jesus. But here's what I want you to notice, and you've probably already got this, right? The, what, where is the first phrase that's found in 1 Peter 2, 9 in this passage? You see it anywhere? Well, that's right. It's, it's not there. Peter adds this phrase to the beginning of the list of phrases that he gives us about the church, about who God's people are supposed to be. And so I think it would cause us to, at least it did for me, it caused me to beg the question, okay, Peter, is this, why the addition? Is there something significant about this? Did you just add it arbitrarily or is it coming from another Old Testament passage or is it in this passage and I just didn't see it? Now now listen, I'm gonna give you my premise, kind of my thesis for the rest of our time together here. Is that this phrase, chosen people, it doesn't appear in Exodus 19, but I think that this phrase, chosen people, when you start to dig in a little bit, is placed intentionally and strategically by Peter at the beginning of the list of four phrases that he uses in 1 Peter 2.9. That it is intentional and that it is strategic. And I think that the reason Peter does this is that the phrase chosen people becomes for Peter the way he is gonna show how all the ideas that are wrapped up in the three phrases that we get here in Exodus 19 come together, lock in and fit together. Let me just show you this in a visual way. All right, here's, here's what I'm claiming. I am claiming that the phrase royal priesthood, holy nation and special possession that, that Peter uses from Exodus 19 are kind of like frames 
or legs in a triangle that when you piece them all together, creates a powerful vision and portrait of how profound the idea of God's people being his chosen people really is. And so for the rest of our time together, here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna investigate each of the three phrases that appears in Exodus 19. We're gonna look to hopefully confront some of the misconceptions that we tend to bring to the table when we encounter this terminology, hopefully demystify things a little bit. And once we unpack some of these three, I think it's gonna become very apparent to all of us how this short little phrase that Peter uses at the beginning, this phrase chosen people becomes a powerful way and an important way that Peter views the importance of Christian community, community of Christ followers, or what the Bible also refers to as the church. All right, you guys good for that? We're gonna take the three? Yeah, I heard a yep, thank you very much. All right, let's start with the first one. Royal priesthood. What does Peter mean when he calls Christ followers a royal priesthood? Well, I, I don't know about you guys, but when I encounter this first word, the left word here, royal, uh, there are a couple of images that come to mind. And the first image that actually comes to my mind is the image of this lady right here, right? Queen Elizabeth II. And you look at her and you think, I, there, there are ideas that come to mind, aren't there? They're, I think royal. I think prestigious. I think powerful. I think regal. I also think old. I think, yeah, guys, I think she has been the Queen of England for about 400 years now, I swear to you. Like, yeah, and, and you know what? Um, I think about these things, and uh, th those are the kind of the thought bubbles that come in my head when I think about Queen Elizabeth II, and those are also the thoughts that she has. She thinks, I'm royal, and she also apparently has sunglasses. I don't know what that's all about. Uh, you know, I'm gonna throw Dan Miller under the bus. Our student ministries guy, Dan Miller, he was helping me with the bubble, the thought bubble PowerPoint. He added this as a joke. I thought it was funny. So there you go. I figured I'd just share that with you as well. Okay, so, but if you think about it, Queen Elizabeth II, powerful, right? Regal, prestigious. And what I also think about uh, monarchy and royalty is uh, that so often when you think about these things, you start, sort of start thinking about how they accumulate this power, how they accumulate this luxury and prestige, and how often monarchies, kings and queens do that on the backs of the people that they lead, right? So if you think about Queen Elizabeth II for a moment, right? You think about what in the world does she do for the English government and for the English people? What does she do? And if you know your English government, you will, you will know that the correct answer is absolutely nothing, <laughs> right? She doesn't do anything because England is a parliamentary government. It is a representative government. And yet Queen Elizabeth here, you start to get this sketch or you could easily assume that when you think about kings and queens and monarchs, man, they enjoy, they're in the lap of luxury and they accumulate all these resources to the neglect or the detriment of the people that they are supposed to serve. And when you think about the idea of royalty in that way, you get discouraged. And then if you add the word priesthood onto the notion of royal, it really doesn't help us too much, does it? Because for many of us, we know or we think, and it comes from even our experiences, that the priests are actually the religious leaders who enjoy power, prestige, honor, and luxury on the backs of or to the detriment of the people that they lead. And so you think about, right, priests, they are the ones that somehow hold God's forgiveness. They can grant or withhold God's forgiveness. They hold that in their hands. And so the question is then, in Exodus 19 and in 1 Peter 2, 9, when the phrase royal priesthood comes around, is this what is meant by Peter? Is this what the Bible means when it calls God's people a royal priesthood? Well, actually, if you go back to Exodus 19 and you start to do some study, you'll actually discover that most scholars, it's almost unanimous. In Exodus 19, most scholars believe that the phrase kingdom of priests that appears there is a direct hyperlink back to the creation of man and woman, the creation of humanity back in Genesis 1. That back in Genesis 1, when God created humanity, that he cast them as a, like they were just supposed to have a function and a role as kings and priests over the good creation that God had made. Humanity is intended or designed to be kingly and priest-like over the rest of creation. 
Now, just for a moment, think about what that would mean and how significant that would be to a group of former slaves that are seated or positioned at the base of a mountain. What would that mean? Man, when God calls them, he's like, I want you to be a kingdom of priests. What's he doing there? Well, he's saying, I want you to be a different kind of humanity. I want you to be a new humanity. Humanity as it was originally designed to be back in Genesis 1. In other words, Israel, I want you to assume the responsibility that Adam and Eve forfeited when they rebelled against God. And you can read about that story in Genesis chapter 3. And so you might be asking the question, okay, if this is indeed a hyperlink to back to Genesis 1, where exactly do scholars come up with this idea? Where's the connection? Well, actually, scholars say that you can see it straight up in the language of Genesis 1, 26 through 28 that's used here. So here's what this passage says. It says, then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. I'm gonna ask you to repeat back to me. So that what? They may rule over. Rule. This is, mon- this is like kingly Language, rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move on the ground. Verse 28, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and what? Subdue it. Man, this, is, this language is subjugation. This is what kings do to foreign powers who oppose them. They subdue them and they conquer, they rule. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. I mean, on top of the kingly vocabulary that's used here, you get this repetition of the word over. Do you see that? You're to rule over the fish, over the sea, over, over, over. Here we have this idea that humanity is supposed to partner with God to do what God has done for them in Eden for the rest of the world. They are to progressively learn God's character and heart and to exercise an authority over the rest of creation to wring out the rest of creation in such a way that it brings about flourishing order and goodness into that world. And so when you think about this, you might ask the question, okay, well, how does that connect with 1 Peter 2, 9? What does that look like? How are they supposed to rule? How is the church supposed to rule in that way? Well, I love what the Old Testament scholar Stephen Dempster says to sort of bring all this together. And I think it's really powerful. So if if you mind, let's go Dempster diving here for a second. Uh, Stephen Dempster says this, in Exodus 19, and again, this is the phrase that Peter uses in 1 Peter 2.9. This is wild, guys. In Exodus 19, the phrase kingdom of priests designates Israel as a particular type of kingdom. Instead of being a kingdom of a particular king, it will be a kingdom marked by priesthood. What's he talking about? He's about to get it, give it to us. That is service of God on behalf of people and vice versa, right? That to be kingly and priestly means one serves God on others' behalf and they serve other people They come underneath them in support of them on behalf of God. It will be a kingdom run not by politicians depending upon strength and connivance, but by priests depending on faith in Yahweh, which is the name of God in the Old Testament. A, catch this, a servant nation instead of a ruling nation as we might conventionally understand it. Israel will thus, wow, redefine the meaning of dominion and rule service, spending our lives in the service of others so that others can benefit and others can flourish. This will be its distinctive task, its distinguishing characteristic among the world of nations. Man, to be a royal priesthood, to be a kingdom of priests, doesn't mean power is privilege. Man, in 1 Peter 2, 9, Peter's saying, the church should understand power, rule, and authority service, service of God on behalf of people, service of people on behalf of God. All right, our second phrase, holy nation. What does Peter mean by being a holy or by encouraging Christ followers to think of themselves as a holy nation? All right, well, again, I don't know about you, but when I think about the word holy, I have a couple of kind of definitions or synonyms that come to mind. And so when I think about the word holy, I immediately think of separated, or removed, 
or distinct from. Like I think about increasing distance between me and something else. And so holy is the thing I do when I don't want to associate with something that I think is gonna pollute me or make me dirty or unclean, right? And so while that's not necessarily a bad definition, those aren't necessarily bad definitions from a biblical perspective. Listen, if you were to go to a Bible dictionary and you were to look up the word holy, chances are one of the first entries you would find is that holy simply means set apart. It means set apart, like not like the rest. And so you get these ideas that there's distance and separation that's supposed to be between me and some polluted entity or person, right? And actually, when you think about this idea of holiness, uh, Peter has already gone to great lengths at the end of chapter one. He's, he has an extended paragraph where he has unpacked a little bit more about what holiness should mean for people who follow Jesus. And what's interesting there, and kind of no surprise, is that in that passage in 1 Peter 1, Peter leans heavily again on his Old Testament. Uh, specifically in the book of Leviticus in the Old Testament from chapter 11, verse 44. And Peter says that, listen, God had a message to the people of Israel back in Leviticus, and it should be the same for you, Christ followers, today. He says that God is telling you, get this, be holy as I am holy. Be holy as I am holy. In other words, in the same way that God is holy, you're to be like that in all your conduct. Now listen to me, when I hear about that, uh, the last time I checked, I'm, I'm the total opposite of that, right? Uh, and, and you are too, for the record, <laughs> right? And so you think about, right, God, infinite, pure, good, without error, filled with integrity. And then I think about me, man, I am just grossly and detestably polluted, right, in comparison. So much so, listen, I'm about to reveal something to you guys that uh, is gonna be super embarrassing to me, but it's super honest. And um, all of us have something in our lives, right, that grinds our gears a little bit, that when we uh, reveal that to other people, it could either come across as funny and cute or just plain out weird, all right? And so what I'm about to share to you, I'm hoping is gonna be funny and cute and not flat out weird. But here's the thing, when I think about me and the idea of holiness, I start thinking about just how frustrated and angry I get, like a fire of bitterness and resentment erupts inside me anytime my wife drinks some kind of fluid and it goes down the wrong pipe <laughs> and she starts choking and hacking incessantly. Yeah, I, I know, I know it's weird, I know it's weird, but we've all got one of those, don't pretend like you don't, okay? We've all got that. But I can't tell you just how angry, I don't know where it comes from. I don't get it. I just get so, I get so mad. <laughs> I really do. I get so, so mad. And then I start thinking about what kind of depraved wretch would react that way to someone? And then I think, me, I do. Yeah, that's me. That's me. Because think about it, this poor woman who I'm supposed to devote my life to in service, this poor woman is coughing incessantly. And all I can think about, seriously, this is the narrative that goes on in my head. It's like, man, you should pay more attention to how you drink fluids so that it wouldn't go down the wrong pipe, so that you wouldn't annoy me terribly with your incessant hacking. So here's the deal though, right? That's the world that I live in. And Peter is saying that God is telling me as a follower of Jesus that I'm supposed to be holy in the same way that God is holy. Now listen, if you struggle with that at all, not the, not the drinking part, right? But like if you struggle with something like that at all, listen, I started thinking about this more and I just started reflecting, man, what if, what if it's not my effort to be holy that falls short of the biblical standard? What if it's my view of holiness that is what really falls short of the biblical standard? Let me say that again. What if it's not my effort to be holy that falls short? What if it's actually the way I define holiness that falls short? Check this out. Recently, there was a, an extensive study done by a group of scholars where they, took, they looked at the word holy and how it was used across the Old Testament. And they actually expanded their search and they took a look at how the word holy was used in the religious literature that uh, the cultures and societies around Israel produced in Israel's time. 
And the result was fascinating. You see, they discovered that holiness doesn't so much mean set apart from or removed from, but that holiness actually more properly means reserved for, devoted to. It's kind of where you get this word if you've ever heard it consecrated or consecrated to, reserved to, that holiness isn't about distancing yourself from pollution, but that holiness means that a group of people is reserved for some special or extraordinary purpose. All right, let me just give you an example of what this might look like today. Let's just say I wanted to take my wife out, the one that chokes all the time on fluids, and uh, let's just say I wanted to take her out for an anniversary dinner, okay? And I wanted to take her out to a restaurant and to a table at that restaurant that has some sort of meaning and significance with regards to our relationship. Kind of a table at a restaurant that provides an emblem for us of our love, right? And so what will I do if I am the least bit of a caring and good husband? What am I gonna do? I'm going to pick up the phone. I'm going to call. I do this. It should actually be this now, shouldn't it? So I pick up the phone and I call. And what do I do? I make a reservation at a restaurant, right? So I reserve a table at the restaurant. Now, listen, I want you to think about the table for a second. Just think about the table. There is nothing inherently special or unique about the table that we will sit at or the table that I reserve, right? It's very common. It's like every other table. There are billions of tables across the globe. They all do functionally the same thing, right? You put your plates on it, you put your silverware on it, put your glasses on it, right? It holds something so that you can have a conversation and eat, right? But my question is, what happens to that table when I reserve it for some special occasion? Well, what happens to that table, it has now been radically repurposed in light of our relationship together. In light of that relationship, now this table has been devoted to something that's beyond itself. It has been assigned now a special function in light of the life that my wife and I share together. It's been radically repurposed. And so listen, guys, the next time you go to make a reservation at a restaurant, here's what I want you to tell the maitre d'. I want you to say, uh, please take the table in the corner of your establishment and make it holy for me, right? Set apart, sanctify the table for me, please. Thank you very much. Take the one portion in the corner of the dining hall and consecrate it for my specific purposes. Because that's language that the Bible would understand, right? You're taking something ordinary and you're making it functionally different. Now, apply this ideology to 1 Peter 2, 9. Man, to be a holy nation doesn't mean that Christ's followers are to remove themselves from the pollution of the world. Oh, you're so dirty and detestable. No, instead, to be holy as I am holy, to be a holy nation means that God's people recognize that they have been marked and devoted for a radically new purpose in life. That a holy nation for Peter doesn't mean removed from people, to be a holy nation means to be reserved for God and neighbor. To be reserved for God and neighbor. All right, last one. Special possession. What does Peter mean by Christ followers being a special possession? Well, actually, this one becomes a little bit easier in light of some of the themes that you can already see cycling through in the first two. It becomes a little bit easier. But if you're like me, and I hear the word special, I often think about something that is better than or more significant than or more inherently or intrinsically good than something else. And this is the mentality that most of us parents take when we think about how much better our kids are than the neighbor's brats next door, right? So like, oh, he's so special. Did you see what he did the other day? Oh man, he's such an artist. I don't think any other child at seven years old has ever produced anything close to what my little Johnny has. Oh goodness, he's so talented. So that's what we might normally think. And I was met with this very vividly the other day. Uh, I was at my son's football practice. And so he's eight years old. He's just starting to get pads and helmets on. And so they're doing the blocking thing and they're kind of hitting a little bit. And so my son was at practice and he's on defense. And there was this one moment where this offensive lineman came around on a sweep. And I swear, like he's, uh, my son's eight years old, but I swear this kid was like 20 years old passing for an eight-year-old on a flag, uh, padded flag team. He comes around and he hits Caleb and man, I just tell you what, this kid annihilated my son. Like 
he destroyed, he destroyed my, guys, it was bad. It was bad. And so after uh, Caleb spent a few minutes flying through the air like a jet blue aircraft, he eventually made his descent. He called air, air traffic control. He made his descent and he lands flat on his back. He's not moving. He's not moving, but you can just hear. <laughs> yeah, aw. So me, like the good father that I am, I very slowly start to motion to get up out of the chair. But before I can get my bucket out of the seat, all of a sudden, the guy next to me just leaps up out of his camping chair and he goes, that's what I'm talking about. Yeah, you go get him, Gavin. You eat him for breakfast. I'm like, breakfast? When did breakfast come into this, right? And I'm thinking, dude, there is a concussed eight-year-old boy lying listless on the ground. And all you care about is how special your little Gavin is. And you have delusions of grandeur in his ascent to the heights of the NFL, right? And so my question, though, is like, is this what Peter means when he calls the church or Jesus followers a special possession? Is that what he means? Well, again, I don't think that's what he means. And like Peter is so prone to do, he is going to look back at his Old Testament to help us see a radically redefined understanding of what it means to be special. Peter is leaning on a passage in Deuteronomy chapter seven. Look at what this says. This is, this is phenomenal. This is gonna blow you away. It says, for you, Israel, my people, this is God speaking, are a people holy, we've encountered this already, to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you. Ah, now we've got this language of being chosen. You out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his what? Treasured possession or special possession. Now the question is, what makes Israel so special here? What is it that makes Israel so special? Let's read on. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples. Israel, you weren't the brightest. You weren't the best. You weren't the most significant in the world. For you were the fewest of all peoples. Sifta had insult to injury. Not only Israel, were you not the best, you were the least. You were the least significant. But why? It was because the Lord loved you and he kept the oath that he swore to your ancestors, that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Man, what we see in this passage is that God does not choose the brightest and the best as we see it from a human point of view. As if there's some kind of divine Israel's got talent thing going on where Israel says, look at me, look at what I can do. Look at how much worth and value I can present to you. Now instead, right here in Deuteronomy 7, God chooses a concussed little boy named Israel lying listless on the ground. And he says, he looks at him and he says, I choose you. You're mine. I love you. You are special. You're different and you're neat. You're unique. And what's the basis for God's choice? First, his love, his unmerited love. And secondly, God swore an oath. God made a promise to somebody. He made a promise to their ancestor, Abraham, back in Genesis 12, one through three. The Lord says to Abram, who will later have his name changed to Abraham, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, Israel. But how do we define greatness? <laughs> I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing to the world around you. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And don't miss this. All the peoples on the earth, all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. See, what makes God's people special is not that they are self-promoting and entitled because we bring nothing to the table that is of value and worth Isaiah will say, all our righteousness, meaning our righteous acts are like filthy 
rags before God. We bring nothing to the table. Special possession is not about self-promotion and entitlement. Instead, it is a people who recognizes the grace of God at work in their lives, that he has chosen them, that they're special and they're unique and different, and that this people simply makes themselves willing and available to be used by God to be the conduit through whom God makes his blessing known to the world around them. Now, as I've said, all three of these things, I think, wrap up together to give us a dynamic portrait of what it means or what Peter is getting at when he calls the church the chosen people of God. You see, being chosen is not about privilege. It's not about removal. It's not about entitlement. Instead, it's about service, engagement, and availability. If you don't catch anything else, catch this. In God's view, to be chosen is all about mission. In God's view, to be chosen is all about mission. That the chosen people of God see themselves as the means by which God's salvation offer that can only be found in the death and resurrection of Jesus becomes known and manifest to a lost and hurting world who need to hear that hope and need to be connected in that relationship. This is how the world comes to know the glory and the greatness of the real God of the universe in the person of Jesus Christ. God chooses a people through which he will get that offer to all. And you can actually see this if you read on in 1 Peter 2.9. You're a chosen people. Why? For a reason, for a purpose, for an outcome, so that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Now, I love this word declare that Peter uses here. In the original language, in the original Greek behind this is the word exangelo. Exangelo. And exangelo is actually a Greek word that is made up of two separate Greek words that when you put them together, it, it kind of uh, creates this one big, awesome idea. And so if you look at exangelo, it's two words, ex or ek, which simply means out, and angelo, which simply means message. It's actually where we get our word angel, and angel is a messenger. But exangelo, when you put these two things together, literally, it can't be more simple and more straightforward. Exangelo, to declare, means to get the message out. Get the message out. Not a group of Christ followers sitting in their assembly declaring God's praises and keeping it huddled up with them, like holy huddle, let's keep it internalized, us for and no more. No, instead, Peter is saying that you're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may get the message out about God's praiseworthiness because he's the one who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now think about this amazing truth and what this means for followers of Jesus. 1 Peter 2.9 says, if you are a follower of Jesus, it means that God has chosen you. Listen, look up at me here. Don't miss this. If you place your faith and your hope and your life in Jesus' hands, if you become his follower, it means that God chose you. And this has nothing to do with anything that you bring to the table. God chose you. And now God wants you to see your life in a radically different way, that you're given new life in Christ, not to hoard that blessing and just appreciate that life and luxury, but instead you've been given a new life so that you may be a conduit of blessing because you are the way that the hope of salvation to, comes out to the world and to those who need it. God chose you for mission. God chose you for mission. Last thing I'll say here before I invite the band up and we close out is this. Is that when you look at 1 Peter 2.9 and you see all these ways that Peter uses to describe what the church or what Christ followers are supposed to be, we might probably because of cultural trends and sometimes pressure and just the way we're taught to think, you might think that all of these things, you might read these uh, descriptions individualistically, right? But notice here that all four of these descriptors that Peter uses are a plural thing. They're a community thing. They're a corporate thing, right? Chosen people, royal priesthood, holy nation, God's special possession. So again, I think the temptation might be for us is to read these beautiful texts super individualistically. 
in other words, that if somebody is going to implore us or invite us into biblical community or like a life group, which is Grace Church's expression of biblical community, many times when we hear the appeal to get connected to a life group or biblical community, we're immediately thinking about like, what's in it for me? Like, if you're going to invite me to biblical community, there are a series of incentives that need to follow if I'm going to be in the least bit motivated to respond to that appeal. So when someone says, man, you got to get into a life group, we're expecting to hear, because people who are in life groups, people who are in life groups are happier people. Or you got to get into a life group. Well, why? Well, because people in life groups have spiritual accountability. And you can't grow to be the kind of person that God wants you to be and be happy in life unless you have spiritual accountability. Or you got to get into a life group. Why? Well, because they have great snacks, right? Just good food. Now, listen to me. None of these things, none of these reasons are inaccurate. There are great reasons to get a part, to become a part of a life group. There are great reasons to plug in. Life groups do have great snacks. It's true. Certifiable. Like there's been surveys and statistics that show that they have great snacks. But let me ask you this question. What if your commitment to biblical community was more about mission than it was about you? What if a commitment to biblical community, to being God's chosen people, was more about mission than it was about you? That when you plug into a life group, you are locking arms with other followers of Jesus, other chosen people, and you have this radically reoriented, this fresh way of viewing what community is all about, that community exists not as an end to itself, but community exists for mission. All right, the band is gonna come up and I just wanna make a quick challenge to a couple different audiences here before we officially close it out. A couple different audiences. Number one, if you are a follower of Jesus and maybe more specifically, if you are a follower of Jesus who is already plugged into a life group, I'm thinking that's awesome. I mean, praise God for that. You're hopefully experiencing the, the, just the vitality that community brings and the mission component of that as well. But I would just ask you, maybe challenge you in light of what you've heard today and being God's chosen people is more about mission than it is necessarily about your own personal benefit. I would just invite you maybe to take this week and just to prayerfully consider what your motivations are for being a part of that life group. Just prayerfully consider and just allow God by his spirit to remind you and to give you that fresh kind of catalyst inside to be motivated to plug in in a deeper way in your life group for the right reasons, for these missional and significant reasons. And then maybe I would encourage you based on that prayer, Maybe what you hear God may be speaking to you about getting more involved in missional aspects or outreach aspects of your life group. And maybe this week go talk to your life group leader or talk to other people in your life group. Maybe it's time for you to just make a new resolute commitment that your life group is going to be about serving the world around you, your neighbors, your community, and the world. And if you're a follower of Jesus and you're not in a life group, I just have to make this appeal, right? you gotta get into a life group. And we say this all the time, you gotta get into a life group. But I wanna encourage you in light of what you heard today, man, this Christian thing, this following Jesus, this sharing the hope of Jesus to the world was never meant to be a solo act. And maybe, like if you're not plugged into biblical community and you're a follower of Jesus, maybe the reason why you struggle so much with the boldness of telling your neighbors, friends, and coworkers about Jesus is simply because you've been trying to do it by yourself. But biblical community is made, God chose a people for mission. What if you getting a part of a life group serves for you to link arms with other people that you make the message and the hope of Jesus known to the world around you together, together? And lastly, if you are not a follower of Jesus, I just wanna say very, very resolutely, thank you so much for being here today. We say it a lot. It's an honor and a privilege that you would come here and just listen to what we have to say and what we believe. But if you're a follower of Jesus, hopefully you, or if you're not a follower of Jesus, hopefully you can understand a little bit more why it is that maybe you have a Christ following friend that is always trying to be interested in sharing the story of Jesus with you. Like they're genuinely not trying to be annoying. Right? Because if they see themselves as God's conduit for blessing to you, it, when they share Jesus with you, it means they love you like crazy. And they want you to know that the hope that they have and that they found is available to you. And I would just submit to you, if you're not a follower of Jesus, and this is hitting you at all, 
man, as the band leads us in song, maybe just talk to God, like from your heart to God's heart and just invite him to maybe give you the next direction, to give you the next step. And that may just be for you to say yes to Jesus. Just say, yeah, you know what? God, I've been trying to do life on my own, my own way, and it's not working. But this this powerful and compelling element of being incorporated into a community where God chooses is intriguing and attractive to me. Man, between your heart and God's, maybe just invite Jesus in. Just say yes to Jesus. Commit yourself to follow him. And when you do that, man, this is such a beautiful thing. 1 Peter 2.9 says that you are incorporated into a family, into a community, and that God looks at you when, you when you receive Christ into your life and says, man, I chose you. You're mine. You're special. You're different. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this truth that you have given us through your servant, Peter, uh, that 2,000 years later, we can look at what he says and what you gave him and hear your heart. Hear your words spoken directly to us. Man, Father, what a beautiful thing it is that when we say yes to Jesus, that we are brought into a community of people, we're brought into your family, that when we look at other followers of Jesus, when we lock arms with them, we can call them brothers and sisters, just like they do throughout the New Testament. And we can experience the kind of community you designed for us. And God, I thank you, Lord, that you didn't just rescue us so that we could enjoy the entitlement and the privilege of what it means to be saved. But God, you rescued us and you have radically reoriented us and giving us, given us, man, the most amazing purpose imaginable that we can literally be the new humanity, kings and priests in a service role, that we can be totally devoted and reserved for you and your purposes to love other people and that we can be called your chosen ones and be special in your sight in that way. Jesus, I just ask that by your Holy Spirit, for every single person in this room, wherever they're at, I just speak to them right now about what a next step and what their next movement is. And help us even as we sing to you to declare the praises, right? To, to, to get the message out, to declare them here so that we could become confident, to declare them outside these walls. God, thank you for community. Thank you for your son. And we pray it all in Jesus' name.